because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is a podcast exploring philosophical themes and popular films. My name is Laura. And I'm Justin. Today we start with a mystery whose answer may destabilize the entire Western world, revealing a lie that has been perpetuated by the Catholic Church. That's right. We're talking about the Da Vinci Code. We are in the middle of a war to protect a secret so powerful that if revealed, it would devastate the very foundations of mankind. Professor Langdon, the chief of police would like your assistance. I'm not sure how much help I'm going to be here. Dear God. And we felt that we needed an art historical powerhouse, someone who could tell fact from fiction and explain what Robert Langdon does for a living. No pressure, Andrea. Uh, <laughs> and, <there's, laughs> and for some reason, she said yes to our invitation. Uh, it's, ret- it's returning guest, Andrea Rosen. Welcome. Oh, my God. Thank you. I'm so <laughs> delighted to be back. I mean, what a description. <laughs> art historical powerhouse. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, Andrea, you wanted to ask us the first question. So go for it. Okay, yes, I want to know um, why you guys picked this movie. (laughs) You're like, why did I watch this? (laughs) Wait, wait, Andrea, had you seen it? You'd seen it before, right? I had, I saw it when it came out in theaters, but not since. Not since, yeah, yeah. I feel like that was a very, I think that's going to be how most people are coming to this podcast are going to be like, yeah, I vaguely remember that movie. That was the movie, yeah. Yeah, from whenever (laughs) it came out. uh, Was it 2006? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the answer to your question is this. It's a story, and was the first time you met one of my uncles, um, and he knew that I was, I think I was studying philosophy in grad school, and you were studying art history. Um, So I think he was putting it all together. He's like, ah, academia, art. You guys are like the the team in the Da Vinci Code. And we were like, hmm. We were were thinking to ourselves like, not really, but maybe, maybe. And so we, yeah, so we were like, all right. So, so, you know, we we thought, okay, we got to go back to the Da Vinci Code. You know, we got to crack this code and see what's going on. And so it just had been in the back plate for a long time. Like that would have been, possibly seven years ago mm-hmm. you know very likely seven eight years ago yeah but i think we just like thought of it as our film then after that oh yeah we knew we're we just we, like it's us yeah yeah that was exactly, <laughs> exactly when people asked us about ourselves we'd be like oh we're like have a, you seen the da vinci code? we're like langdon and sophie what's her name Neveu, Neveu. Uh, in, in the da vinci code so that's the answer now it's not a very good answer because neither of us are like super fans of this movie by any means um i don't think i had seen it you don't think you'd seen it at all? No. Oh, well, this was the first time you saw it? <laughs> I think so. But you had read the book. I had read the book. Ha- Andrea, had you read right. the book? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, who hasn't? <laughs> yeah. It, really? yes. Truly. 80 really, million truly. copies apparently sold. <laughs> um, I feel like I still see it hardcovers prominently featured in like, you know, airport bookstores. Really? Really? You know, I... I mean, maybe I'm making that up. I don't know. I, I would feel believe like it. I still see it all over the place. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, let me ask you guys this. So 
I mean, let me well, let me start with some more facts about this movie. So, 80 million <laughs> copies for the book. It was a sensation. I mean, it was like the yeah. the book at the moment. We all read it. Um and I don't read this kind of like trash fiction. I don't really read anything. So, that was a that was mm-hmm. a feat. How dare you? Um, trash fiction. Well, How dare you? <laughs> uh the movie earned 760 million dollars worldwide. It was the second highest grossing movie of 2006, second to Pirates of the Caribbean, The Dead Man's Chest. And yet, as I think your experience with the movie, Andrea, was our experience, mm-hmm. this movie is like largely forgotten. It's sort of been swept away to the sands of time. This was once the highest, what, second highest grossing movie of the year. And yet, has anybody gone back and rewatched it? First of all, I don't think it's anyone's favorite movie. I don't think mm-hmm. it's on anyone's like top 10 lists. And yet it was such a hit. What, I mean, what do you think was like appealing about this and why did it just get so quickly forgotten? I, th- I just think that's an interesting question. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I do. I mean, obviously, because the book was such a sensation, like everyone was going to go see the movie, you know, just because however many millions of people saw it doesn't mean however many millions of people liked it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a reason to go. And, you know, I was also thinking about this in terms of, you know, so much more of a monoculture then, and also think about how different film going was then, yeah. right? Like this is kind of the perfect movie to be like, you want to go see a movie? Yeah, sure. What's on that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. That one, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a family crowd pleaser, Yeah, you know, in a way that now, particularly in the pandemic, if you're going back to movies at all, it's, you know, selective. Like, well, yeah. I have to see Spider-Man in yeah. theaters, you know? Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right about the monoculture. I mean, I, the fact that, I mean, I wonder what the next, if there could be like another book that hits the same way as Da Vinci Code where ev- literally everybody in the world read it practically. Mm. Uh, it's hard to imagine. I mean, I guess so Da Vinci Code did get outsold by Order of the Phoenix. So there's that, right? Maybe there could be another YA sensation like Harry Potter. But it does feel like we were sort of all kind of reading the same book, watching the same five shows a little bit more what in 2003. What do they call those four quadrants? It feels like it's a four quadrant you know, uh, hit in that sense, right? It's got the, like, older demographic, because it's about history. It's got the <laughs> middle-aged demographic, like, men. because oh, it's about Robert oh, Langdon yeah. is, like, it's he, Tom Hanks. It's Tom Hanks, yeah. It's the got, it's got America's go Dad. And then the ladies are there because it's about art. I mean, that's why I was there. Art and poozles. Yeah. I love a good puzzle. Right. <laughs> and then, like, the teens are there because maybe they're just like, whatever, it's a Ouija 13 movie. I'll go check it out. <laughs> so it is like, it really does hit a lot of, a lot of check a lot of boxes. I mean, here's, here's another way of putting the question. How much of it do you think is something universal? Like, like one answer is like, oh, man, puzzles are just, we love puzzles. And another answer is, no, it hit at the right moment. This was just the right moment for this movie. And then if that's the quite if that's right, then like, well, what was key about this moment? One thing you said, Andrea, is that, well, you know, movie going was this was a bigger thing then and so on. So it kind of hit right at that point. But I mean, it also did outperform every other movie except for one that year. So it was there was some appeal to it specifically. And was it just the puzzles or was it like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it was also yeah. the brand name and the book was popular. So yeah. yeah. I mean, it was also, I was thinking about it, where my life was and where, you know, politics were in 2003 to 2006, between when this movie book was published and when the movie came out. And like, we're right in, Bush gets reelected in 
when does he oh, four. Four. oh four okay okay so we're like th- midway through the second term of bush when the movie comes out we're right about we're in the iraq war just starting when the book first comes out and i just feel like there was so much talk about christianity and christian values and american as a christian nation and mm-hmm. um a concern about you know preserving our christianness as a christian nation there, i just feel like that was something that was all around us, however you felt about it. And I wonder too, if like there, cause I know that I was, I had completely forgotten this, but apparently there was a lot of uproar from conservative Christians in response to the Da Vinci code and response to when the movie came out. Um, and like, maybe it's sort of like a rebellious thing to, to want to like read a book that, you know, that, has some critiques of the institution of yeah, religion. Totally valid critiques. <laughs> well, also, I mean, oh, yeah. anytime there's a there's a controversy, that will just drive ticket sales, right? Because yeah, well, I also didn't realize Dan Brown's just running around telling people it's all true. <laughs> I know. I was reading up on that because you you yeah you have all the not surprising um, pushback from Christians, but then you also got a lot of pushback, I guess, from historians. Who are like, this is trash. <laughs> oh, and also writers being like, this book is trash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, but but yeah, a lot of historians criticizing him for um, not doing good research, maybe even almost for like almost kind of plagiar- plagiarizing mm-hmm. some stuff. And and yeah, I was like, oh, why such a big deal? It's you know, it's just supposed to be fun and a fantasy. But then I it brought up and I remembered in the book there was a note. Yeah. Like an intro where he's like the prior of Priory of Scion is real. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently it, it's known to be a hoax that was invented in the 1950s. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Dude, Dan Brown knows how to sell a book. Like, come on. Right? This guy's a total huckster. Like, I mean, that's good for him. You know, whatever. What, he's cashed that check. And three times with the with, <laughs> with the novels and then the three movies, which we have not seen, although we plan. And there's to see. a TV show too. What? What? It's uh, called The Lost Symbol. It's got some other younger guy playing Langdon. Langdon. Okay. Yeah. All wow. right. Well, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to take a deep dive, Justin. Wow. I'm gonna be real Langdon. I mean, over I here. do think the other thing about it is that you know it's kind of a classic genre thing of like puzzles and mysteries and twists secret societies secret yeah uncovering the secret i think there's something deeply des- you know human human desire to just find out ferret out a secret and be the only person who knows and then like reveal the truth and be like aha it's the sort of thing that like drives conspiracy theories right you want to be the person who knows and you also want it to all sort of make sense right you want to make sense of why is the world all messed up? And oh, it's just because there's this cabal of evildoers. Who yeah, are if only there was a simple the answer like yeah. that, right? <laughs> yeah. And, right. And in this, the answer is well, there's a kind of Catholic Church conspiracy thing, which is actually kind of convoluted. But um, yeah, I, I think there's something satisfying about that. So that oh, can explain some of the appeal. Um, you know, I get that. I I had to say, I mean. I don't know if you, we want to deliver our verdicts on the movie right now, but I had a good time rewatching it. I I had a lot of fun. Yeah, I, silence and everyone else. No, 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 no. I, I also enjoyed it. I it was a little long. I feel. Yeah, it was long. 
I'm on the record as saying if a movie is over two hours, it needs to really be amazing or it needs to write me a letter of apology because I don't have time for this shit. Um, but yeah, so I could have I could have like had some editing with it. But yeah, there's some twists and turns and I love puzzles and riddles, mm-hmm. man. So I was on board. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think my my criticism of it after watching it is sort of similar to what I thought it would be going in was it feels like it should be more fun. And maybe be less, ser- take itself less seriously. Yes. Um, maybe it could even like take a turn for the campy, you know, uh, you know, just that, that, um, yeah, it feels, it feels more serious than it needs to be. You know, yeah. I never felt exhilarated. I never really laughed, you know, and that's kind of what I want out of my action adventure mm-hmm. movies. Yeah. So. I mean, then Marvel's figure that out too, yeah. right? Well, like we I, need oh, yeah. a little, we need, we need the highs and the lows and we need to laugh. Yeah. I know. I know what you mean. I think like I would, the Hans Zimmer score is like so deadly serious and like an ecclesiastical and feel and like they're, the whole movie is like, this is so important and we're taking this <laughs> dead seriously. <and laughs> definitely. Yeah. Priory Scion totally exists, yeah. you know? And yeah. I, t- I agree with you. If they, we could, they could have leaned a little harder into the fun and <laughs> Because it's silly. But but the challenge, though, is that the 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 self-flagellation stuff is in the book. And it's a it's yeah. like a little, you know, you that can't be funny about it's that. a little bit of a downer when like you got to cut to this <laughs> naked albino guy, like whipping himself in the back with the cat on nine tails. <laughs> we see we see Paul Bettany's butt in a lot of movies. I'll just he's not afraid to send his contract. Yeah. He must show his butt. Right, right. I, he used to be a big celebrity crush of mine, so mm. I, I must have a tally, although I think this movie probably <laughs> tanked it this a is little not- bit. <laughs> <laughs> not your top hot bet knee rolls. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's let's recap the plot. And just okay, by we'll the way, uh, for the audience, the now will be spoilers and there are a lot of spoilers in this movie because i counted i think hold on i think i counted nine nine twists in this movie i mean depending on how you define twists there are a lot of twists in this movie this movie is just trying its best i mean like the book to at every chapter break deliver a twist cliffhanger thing that keeps you hooked onto the next uh, chapter so r- broadly speaking, the plot is there's a, there are two groups, warring factions, the Priory of Sion and Opus Dei. The Priory of Sion are devoted to um, maintaining a secret and then eventually revealing it when it can be proven, which is that Jesus had a daughter, right, with Mary Magdalene, and that she was, Mary Magdalene was a saint and part of the crew. Um, and her, and then her daughter had kids and so on. So there's a Christ lineage that has kind of, you know, gone into the world and so on. And the prior sign is devoted to keeping that knowledge alive, protecting that lineage. And Opus Dei is interested in, fu- in basically finding out who those people are and killing them. So just destroying all um, evidence that Jesus ever had any kids uh, because I I suspect, I mean, we can talk a little bit, th- bit about this, but I, I suspect the reason is because, one, they wanted to cover up Mary Magdalene having any exalted status, because then they would have to maybe give women more of a role in the church or something. But two, that then there would be a direct competitor, in a way, to their authority on earth, namely the lineage of Jesus Christ. 
And so they wouldn't have the kind of power that the Catholic Church you know, has had historically. So they so they're really concerned about like keeping this secret hidden. And then in the movie, um the the main characters are Robert Langdon played by Tom Hanks and Sophie Naveau played by Audrey Tatu. And then we are also introduced to Sir Leigh Teabing, played by Ian McKellen. And they're on the run. They found out after the death of Audrey Tatu's grandfather, they're on the run. And, you know, he's he's left her some mystical clues to try to basically induct her into the Priory of Sion. And um, and they're trying to solve the clues and evade the authorities and Opus Dei. That's a rough summary of the plot. Does that seem reasonable? Yep. Now, what I think is kind of interesting about this is that there's a lot of twists. But one of the things that's interesting is that there's not clearly a good guy and a bad guy. So like, there's a lot of conf- conflicting, you know, sides to this. But it's not like an obvious bad guy and an obvious good guy. You, you think the Opus Dei is the bad guy and the Prior of Science the good guy. But it kind of turns out that Opus Dei are really being manipulated by another person called the Teacher who turns out to be Teabing and... He has his own plan that he was actually working with the Priory of Scion in a way or kind of on his own, but allied with them to reveal the secret. And so they're sort of pawns on him. So I was just curious. And then, you know, in the middle are Langdon and Sophie. And so, yeah, I was just curious, like, uh, you know, what did you guys think of the characters and sort of who did you align with in, over the course of the film? Yeah, I mean, the only... I guess good guy, bad guy, as you said, there's layers to the bad guys and there's a lot of bad guys, (laughs) right? Like the only people who don't do anything pretty atrocious are um, Robert Langdon, Sophie, and then Kello, who's just like the other, Calais, Cole, Cole, the other French detective who's just kind of on the side being like, Fash, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> oh yeah, uh, Fash. We forgot too about the other well, he's Opus a, he's Day. He's a detective who's yeah in Opus Day. So they're all in Opus Day. Everybody's or the in Opus Day. <laughs> right, right, right. But yeah, I, and then so thinking about this question towards the end, it's like, well, okay, they all have a bit of redeem, re, redeeming qualities. Maybe not to overcome their evil doing, but Fash does the right thing at the end. Um, Silas, the creepy albino monk, and the bishop he works for, Alfred Molina, like have affection for each other. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that's. I think in the book the bishop was more like abusive towards Silas. I'm not sure I'm remembering that right, but there's like genuine affection there as they both die next to each other. Mm-hmm. Spoiler again, <laughs> and even like T being like totally delusional in terms of what effect he thinks this revelation is going to have, and I know that's one of our next topics, but. Yeah. Um, I mean, what he wants is to, you know, try to combat the centuries of evil doing by the, the Catholic Church and the oppression that that has brought. So even there, even though he's kind of demented, like that's his motivation. I guess you could say that's a redeeming quality. I think it's a lot of it's Are you team teabing? I have Look, a feeling. <laughs> yes, but I let's get into it. So I I mean, here's one of the I think the central act, the real central conflict of the film comes out in the very end, which is, okay, Sophie is revealed to be a descendant of Christ. And it's a, it's thought in that moment that there's no proof, okay? Because the body of Mary Magdalene, the, the remains of Mary Magdalene have been moved, and so we so it's a, maybe there's no proof. But suppose there is that proof. So they now have DNA evidence that can basically say, here's Mary Magdalene 
which again, how would how we establish that? that? But anyway, yeah. let's say this is Mary Magdalene. <laughs> We've established that definitively. Yeah. And we established that your DNA related to her. So, okay. So somehow you're a descendant of Mary Magdalene. Again, how that maybe Mary Magdalene had kids with someone else. So somehow we establish you're, you're definitively a descendant of Christ, if, there, if that's even possible. You know, that's the, that's the, the conflict is, okay, should we reveal this information? We have this information now. Should we actually give it out? And, and I was actually kind of curious with you guys, because on the one hand, I think there's, you might think there's some pressure to do it. That there's been this big lie that's been perpetrated by a, by a large organization in the name of power. Um, and done so willfully. On the other hand, the descendants of Mary Magdalene and Jesus, like, they don't necessarily have any affiliation with the Christianity, right? They're just like, it's just this thing that came up, you know, Christianity sprung up after Jesus. You know, you might even think Jesus doesn't mm-hmm. have any, he's just like a Jew who preached some stuff and then he, he died, you know, maybe he had some family and had some kids. And now it's like your family is saddled with this big secret, which affects a lot of people, but it is kind of in your way, your secret. It's like a fast thing that's been passed down through your family from generation to generation. And so, you know, you might think, well, privacy affords you some degree of autonomy with what you do about this. And that's kind of the line Rob, uh, Langdon ends up coming down on. But do you feel any conflict here? I mean, like, I, I, I kind of feel like there is a conflict. Like, there's some pressure to want to reveal it because it is horrible. But on the other hand, there's some pressure you might think well i it's my right to not reveal it because it's just like my family secret and i should not be feel any obligation to reveal that to other people if if part of the point of um revealing this fact is to point out that the catholic church has denied women power in the church, you don't need that. <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> joke. <laughs> pretty easily established and if you believe that that's wrong then you believe that's wrong whether or not agreed happened or not you know i guess another so another thing in that conflict the originating conflict that's explained five times is this conflict between the idea of jesus's divinity and his humanity yeah. and that they say that that's sort of the dividing line there mm-hmm. and so i guess <laughs> it feels like the thing the catholic church would hate would be acknowledging that Jesus had sex, yeah. right? Like, like any, uh, you know, they don't even want to acknowledge that his mother had sex, right? <laughs> like, just like any hint of a l- something deemed impure is is what would really get their hackles up. I totally agree that that at the, for, it was a little bit hard for me to get into the movie in the sense that I was like, there's some big lie that would make people somehow not be adherents of the Catholic Church, and I was thinking like, you know wait a second, this is already obvious. Like, I mean, you you should, like, there's so many reasons to not be a a Catholic. Like, they're already there in plain sight. Like, this is not gonna, how how are we, I'm supposed to now suspend my disbelief and think, okay, this is really the one that would really do it. And I was like, not the like abuses that are happening, you know. Yeah, not all the stuff that's public knowledge. Yeah. So I was thinking, Mm -hmm. uh, okay, but then I was just like, okay, let's just set that aside. Suppose this is the smoking gun, you know, then like, I I kind of can see some sense in which I'd feel like if I was a true believer Catholic, right? Like, I know a lot of people actually who are, um, who are true believers, and they feel a certain degree of they have a complex relationship with the Catholic Church, to you know, to put it mildly. 
They like the teachings. They don't like all the ways those teachings get perpetuated. They don't like the hierarchical nature. They don't like the decisions that have been made by the leadership historically and so on. So that's a person who might be swayed, you might think, by something like this. They realize, oh my God, there's been this huge lie. I'm not going to like not believe in Jesus anymore or something, but I'm going to fall away from the church and not provide them my money and not support them. I might, you know, be a lapsed Catholic or I might switch my, I might become a Protestant or something. In that situation, when I think about that kind of person, I think, but then I feel the force of it. Then I'm like, ah, I, I feel T-Bing's side. I'm like, you know what? That person would want to know, you know? And, mm-hmm. and in some sense, this is, this is good. Infor- you know, like that's relevant to them. And, and, and by not revealing it, but knowing it, I'm complicit in the lie that, they, that is, is a big part of their life. You know, even though I don't think none of this, any of this matters, but to them, it really does matter. And so I kind of feel the force of it when I think of it from that perspective. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think my my cowardly self would just would just want to keep that right to myself. I don't, I don't like. I'm like I didn't make any of these choices, <laughs> and I I mean I on a very personal level, like I just wouldn't want that attention at all, and I wouldn't want it for my family, and I would just be like I didn't ask for this. Um, yeah, I just don't know what really. What I think Teabing is is real confused about what kind of ch- change this is going to make. Uh, mm-hmm. I can see your point, Justin, that there are a, there are a handful. There's a small section of people for whom this might be a deciding factor for them about how they choose to, if not believe, then affiliate themselves with a, like a formal religious organization. But mm-hmm. I t- I just don't know why it matters. But even if they don't <laughs> change their mind about the Catholic Church, shouldn't they? have the right to be able to make that decision with the full knowledge of what's going on. You know what I mean? So like they could ultimately just be like, okay, but I forgive the Catholic church. I'm not going to fall away from the church, but they should have the, at least the ability to make that decision knowing the facts. And by me withholding the facts, I'm in a way. But the, the facts in question are just that, you know, they have. That the church has lied. They, that, that, bit, that part. They have lied about about biographical facts about Christ. Yeah. Which we know that the Bible is like a selective group of stories yeah. that were written many, many years after he lived. We know that we don't like, I mean, I say we as if like everybody knows that, but like when I was in, it's funny enough, I read this book while I was going through confirmation at my mm. Presbyterian church. And so we were <laughs> learning about the Council of Nicaea and we were learning like, this is kind of a mishmash, you know? This is like what they felt like were the best go- the best texts, the best gospels, the closest to what happened. Stuff got thrown out, stuff got added in. They got a big council, they argued about it, and then like this is what we have. This is the Bible, but it's not like it came down from heaven, you know? And um Christianity was on the rise. He didn't want his empire torn apart. And to strengthen this new Christian tradition Constantine held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. And at this council, the many sects of Christianity debated and uh, voted on, well, uh, everything from the acceptance and rejection of specific gospels to the date for Easter to the ministering of the sacraments and, of course, the immortality of Jesus. I don't follow. Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by many of his followers as a mighty prophet, as a great and powerful man, but a man, nevertheless, a mortal man. Not the son of God? Not even his nephew twice removed. 
And so like, it's not really that surprising to me that, you know, we have concocted a biography that is obviously going to be inaccurate and full of holes. And also we would never, we never will know. Yeah. Never, ever. Mm-hmm. You know, if there, right. if there was in fact a historical person, Jesus Christ, like, so I, I just, so the Catholic church, uh, made choices to hide certain parts of his biography. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's that's definitely true either way. But that they also fair, they also yeah, thought the killing, out and killed the people. The killing people, and, sure, and, not great, but also we've got crusades. So, like, this is kind of a drop <laughs> in the bucket. <laughs> you know? Yeah. All right. <laughs> a lot, I mean, they say, like, as long as there's been a one true God, there's been killing in his name. So, like, this is kind of small potatoes <laughs> compared to some larger scale, you know, violence. And and also, I mean, relates so much to, of course, our current moment and sort of people believe what they choose to believe, which is convenient for them, de- depending on their circumstances and in contravention of any scientific fact. Um, but I imagine by in this world, by and large, including high up people in the Catholic Church, don't know this about Christ having like it would seem like in order to perpetuate the lie they wouldn't want to keep that knowledge in the world right so in a way it's a, I, I I guess I would imagine almost like if Opus Day is kind of the equivalent of Pyrie of Science it's a very small group yeah. mm-hmm. that preserves this knowledge in order to you know uh, combat it yeah. but otherwise you wouldn't want that being like widespread knowledge and like upper management of the church because it would get out right so yeah like why why wouldn't you try to erase that fact entirely unless you just need a small group to hold on to that fact so they can keep trying to keep it out of the world mm-hmm. yeah yeah i see what you mean yeah so even if it comes out they, the most of the church leadership complete ignorance and then just be like mm-hmm. oh we didn't that was some you know thing that we didn't know about right yeah that's right i mean I, yeah i i that's probably true and um that weakens the case for teeping i i think though that um yeah i was thinking a little bit about like you know why else they might want to keep this secret and there's the like jesus never had sex thing but the other thing i was thinking about that i don't know if you think find this interesting but you know if suppose you think jesus really is not just also that he's the son of god but he also is god right like so you think he's like the divine entity he's both human and divine and he has a child so, like, what is their metaphysical mm. status? Are they, like, part <laughs> divine? You know? And and I was thinking, then, that could be kind of interesting, right? Because now you have this sort of divine blood that's that has genuine, has, like, a genuine connection to God. And it's, it, but it's human. Um, I, that could be a real threat, right, to the church in some sense, right? Because you could think, like, oh, okay, these, these people who are the descendants, like, they're chosen in a way um, because they are blood-related to God. Um, and that I thought I just thought was a kind of interesting idea. And so, I mean, there could be that, that they're trying to, they don't want anyone to get any, you know, cause on one end they're, they're going to be like, yeah, Jesus, he's divine. But then if this comes out, they can be like, well, he's just a guy, right? He's, this is just people, right? you know, the Pope talks to God. And then they'd, they'd be in a little bit of a double bind because then they'd have to say like, oh, well, the Pope talks to God, but then also the descendant of God, right? she's mm-hmm. got God's phone number too because God's her great, 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 right. great, 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 right. great, 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 great. She gets on the microphone and she's like, I don't think this is a sacrament. And then, you know, things are awkward. <laughs> yeah, they would not like that. So <laughs> there's like a real, there's like a potential challenge to their, to their leadership structure. Uh, 
And uh, so I, anyway, in that sense, I'm like, yeah, like, I don't know. If okay. I was a believer, I'd be like, I'd be worried. I would, I'd be worried. I'd be like, yeah, especially with the Catholic Church, because you're like, it's so hierarchical, right? In a pro for Protestants, it's, it's totally different because with Protestants, like everyone talks to God, right? We all just sit down and pray. We all have like a direct line. But with with Catholics, it's like, you know, he only only the Pope really has got the line. So is that it, how that works? Yeah, they only okay. it's hierarchical. Like the Pope is the one who gets the decrees and tells them to people. Everyone else has to just listen to whatever the Pope says. Um, so so it would be a real worry if if there were other people, you know, if there was this whole generation of Jesus, you know, sons and daughters. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you All made right. a case. I, I, I can see how this is a, would be a real problem for the Catholic Church. But I, and, and for that reason, Jess, you feel like you got to blow it up. You got to let the people know. I don't know. know. Whatever. Whatever. Who knows? You got to put it on Twitter. <laughs> who's being, yeah, exactly. Who's being convinced by this? I mean, in today's day and age, right, obviously what we've seen is nobody would be convinced because it would, everyone would just be like, oh, that's a conspiracy theory, blah, blah, blah. I, you know, but people, you know, whatever. There'd be anti vax versions of, the Sophie's claim to Christ's throne and then there'd be the like supporters and it would just be this huge mess and nobody, you know, and everyone would be like, oh, it's just a political battle. So obviously in today's day and age, we, we realize, oh, absolutely nothing would happen. It would just be, a, you know, it would be exactly the situation we're in right now. And so... <laughs> this is our this is our Nihilist podcast yeah. called Cows in the Field. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that was all just my way of Nothing saying... Nothing even matters anymore. Yeah, that was always my way of saying, like, from today's perspective, I, I found the central conflict actually very hard to get into because I was like, I had to really be like, okay, remember, go back to a time when people really did care about what was printed in the newspaper and be like, okay, I got to remember what that was like. You know, because otherwise it just does, no, none, this problem does not arise at all because you're yeah. just like, nobody's going to believe it. Like Sophie comes out and people just like laugh her off the stage, right? They'd be like, DNA, what's that? So, um, but Andrea, you wanted to talk a little bit about Mary Magdalene. No, I, I, it actually, I think, relates to what Laura was saying earlier about this being kind of a heyday of like wanting to poke holes in the authority of the church. And so definitely as sort of a feminist high schooler, I was like super into this idea of like Mary Magdalene married Christ and she was really one of the disciples. You know, so so that was I just I do remember having that kind of like, yeah, screw you, church, like <laughs> women power. Like we were, to you know, to so like, again, that idea of latching on to this specific idea of like, yeah, that's totally how it went down. That makes so much sense. Like, I definitely felt that way. And now, again, it's just like, it doesn't matter because we could never prove that. But the point being, it doesn't it doesn't matter because the point is no doubt women did play a much greater role in Christ's life and in the early formation of the church than male church leaders and gospel writers have ever given them credit for. And you don't need Mary Magdalene to have married Christ for that to be true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's right. Good, good on that point and take that Dan Brown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to shift to, so one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on is because, um, you know, one, the central character here is, a kind of cross between a linguist, an anthropologist, an art historian, a historian, 
Um, he's a symbologist. He's a symbologist. That's right. Now, <laughs> he's a professor. This is a definitely a real profession. Yeah, he's a prof- he's a Harvard professor of symbology, which obviously does not exist. That's not real. <laughs> Although I will say what is real is that we learned when you were in grad school was that there is a subfield called zoosemiotics. Yes. <laughs> oh, do you know like about animal? this? Yeah, animal Anim- signs. Okay, cool. Nice. Yeah, that was some good Wikipedia. Yeah, <laughs> our first year go to the- pro sem. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't have anything to do with cryptozoology, does it? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, uh, we did not see that movie. Is it good? Did you like it? I, I don't even know what movie you're talking about. I just know there is a cryptozoology museum in Portland, Maine. Oh, okay. I was thinking, so wow. Now. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking of, there was a movie called CryptoZoo this year, so. Um, yeah, anyway, but uh, but so Harvard symbology, which is ob- obviously made up. Now, the first thing is he gives this really impassioned speech at the beginning. <laughs> He's given a talk or a public lecture. I was curious, Andrea, you know, you've had to give lectures like this. You've probably <laughs> been in many audiences of lectures like this. Mm. You know, what would you be? What grade would you give this lecture? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> uh, Something between a D and a C. Oh, wow. <laughs> Not great. No. Well, okay. So, and and as an active professor, I'd love your take on this whole, like, trick the audience bit. Yeah. Oh, you think this thing? <laughs> it's it's all gotcha. really thing. Like, that's so mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, what really got me and sort of knowing where the movie would go from it is at the end, he's like, but if you dig deep enough, you'll find historical truth at the heart of all this. And that's what the study is all about. And I'm like, that counters exactly what you were just going through. You were just going through how these symbols are interpreted differently in different cultures, which means there is no absolute truth to a trident or a swastika. Like it's all culturally relative and it changes over time and and with context. So what is historical truth in the study of symbols that (laughs) morph in these ways? Like that made no sense. Andrea, I think that's a great point. Um, I will, I will say what I liked about his lecture. And this is you loved this is it. Just, you well, gave it a plus 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 plus. I mean, I Andrea's point still stands. You gave him tenure re- immediately. Re- well, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, it's a you know it's a public lecture, so it's obviously pitched to general audience. But sure. the thing I liked about it was that there was audience participation, and that's the thing. This he's engaging the audience dialectically, and so he's trying to bring them in. Now, obviously, he's doing it in like a completely facile way. But the idea of being like, let's think about this. What do you think? And then like bring eliciting ideas from them and then building on that. That's that's a good I think that's a good method to, to you know, to sure. engage in. A lot of these lectures are so boring, partly because like like most of my lectures, they're just me up there monologuing about something. And most of the audience is not interested after about two minutes. They just don't care. Or probably, let's be honest, 30 seconds. <laughs> Um, and then they just have to sit there for another 59 minutes. Um, but but is it's engaging? And I thought, you know, it's good. And yet, what did you think of the slides? I mean, that was pretty, were pretty, good. pretty nice. What, yeah, was, yeah. what was that name of that presentation? Um, it was like a rival to PowerPoint. And you can oh, move around. Prezi? Prezi. That's oh, right. Yeah. Right. Our, our good grad school friend was super into Prezi. She was super into Prezi. That's right. She yeah, said she yeah, was like, yeah. you could do the Ken Burns swoop. It was yeah. cool when we did Japanese scrolls. You could just move right along that sucker. It oh, was nice. cool. Mm. <laughs> I know. I was thinking about Prezi the whole time. 
yeah, it, it did have some zooming in. Zooming yeah. yeah, well, yeah, that was the whole impressive. thing. He was like, what do you think this is? Nope, zoom out. It's not what you think it was. He did that like six <laughs> times. <laughs> that's right um, poor poor poseidon well <laughs> let, let me ask you this then andrea so as an art historian and as someone who has a, with a higher degree in um in art history i mean uh is what he was doing art history <laughs> um oh that's a good question <laughs> you know i guess all right I'll, i think it is interesting and important that art history is expanding into the realm of material culture, mm. meaning it doesn't have to be like in a museum, a painting on the wall, a sculpture on a pedestal to be worthy of sort of visual and material study that teaches us something. It definitely brings up questions about like the line between art history and anthropology. And we had to deal with those questions a lot at the museum where I worked because our collection covered both and came out of both. Um, and yeah, where, where do you draw that line? Particularly when most of the world's visual and material production was not labeled art with a capital A and intended to end up in an art museum. So yeah. where's the line between what is art and not art? So I guess in the sense of art history expanding into material culture and including symbols and materials that may not be art with a capital A, then I think it it could be art history. But yeah, I guess traditionally it's, you know, is it in a painting on a wall in a museum? <laughs> then it's art history and not if it's these other things. I mean which I think is the the poorer for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean of it. when I think about what art he was doing in that lecture, I sort of think sometimes that's what we're doing in this podcast. I mean, in a way, and that's what I think sometimes art historians yeah. are doing, and I think that's sometimes what, you know, literary critics are doing, is you're taking the object, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be a piece of art, it could just be a cultural artifact, and you're thinking about how that art, that piece, whatever it is, reflects aspects of the culture in which it was created. And you're sort of thinking about how you gain some purchase on the culture through this artifact. And you're thinking about, so you're sort of thinking anthropologically, but you're using the object as the sort of source and the lens or whatever through which you're viewing things. And, you know, I think that that is a, it's like a widely shared, nor you know, method of inquiry. And I think it's something that's intuitive and compelling to, to people. It's something we find, it's like a, it's a methodology we fall into, I think, quite naturally when we're just, working our way through the world because it's something we're doing all the time right like when you go to a new country it doesn't you know where you, you don't speak the language you're sort of confronted constantly with different symbols and objects and you're trying to find your way around and um some of those symbols you know are imbued with genuine meaning because they're signs or something but oftentimes they're not like you know imagine somebody finding a um a water fountain for the first time and not knowing, ah, is this a sculpture or is this something I can drink from? I, you, you're just sort of sorting this out and then you're trying to figure out like, why would there be a water fountain here? Like what, what was the reason for that? And maybe, oh, it's because there's like a lot of runners who come through here and this, this, cause running is an important part of this culture and that kind of thing. So anyway, I, I, I think, and, and in some ways, like that's what we're doing with movies. Like when we, at the beginning of this podcast, we were saying like, what was going on in 2006 that made this movie the second highest grossing movie. In terms of academic talks on film, do you like this one more or less than the Lucy 
what if you could use 100% of your brain? Oh, my God. So, all right. I'm going to add one more to that mix. Have you seen the movie Lucy, Andrea? I've seen bits of it. I don't think I saw the beginning, so I don't think I saw that. So, it's Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman. (laughs) It's it's interspliced, actually, throughout the the movie. But he's like, see, he's like saying, like, humans only use 10% of their brain. But, like, we figured out a way to use... 15% 15% of your brain or something like that. And then someone in the audience like raises their hand kind of smugly. <laughs> They're like, excuse me, sir. Yes. But what would happen if for some reason we ignore somebody unlocked 100% of the cerebral capacity? 100%? Yes. I have no idea. 100% of your, what? <laughs> <laughs> As, as, as our if, son would say, hubba what? Hubba what? <laughs> um, I love that one. This one's great. But the, the one I want to just mention, it was, it's not yeah. really a public lecture, but it is a lecture and it is a philosophy professor. You know where I'm going with this, Oh, Laura. God, for Pete's sake. God's not dead. He's surely alive. He's the opening lecture when he walks in the room and he's just like, I want you all to sign a <laughs> A contract. You haven't told me what movie you're talking about. Oh, the movie is God's Not Dead. God's Not Dead is the name of the movie. That's the name of the movie. The philosophy professor played by Kevin Sorbo walks in day one of philosophy one. And he says, we all know God's dead. So I'm just going to now make you sign a contract saying that you don't believe in God. <laughs> that you agree God is doesn't exist. And, and then if you we, don't do it, I'll fail you. Yeah, right? and if you don't do it, I'll <laughs> fail Wait, did you say <laughs> Kevin Sorbo like Hercules? Oh yeah, totally. Yes. Hercules, Hercules. Yeah. Yes, we did. Say We've got to cover this movie on the podcast. It's one of my favorite movies ever. It's an incredible depiction of philosophy um, through the lens of Christians. Um, have you have you watched The Good Place? Yes. Uh, so we've watched the first season. Oh, okay. So in mid to late season three, mm. um, Chidi gives an amazing philosophy lecture while he's having a mental breakdown oh good oh great that sounds like every lecture philosophy lecture (laughs) i've ever given (laughs) so yes save you know save a place on your list for that okay yeah i think we'll have to check out the cheaty talk i wanted to ask you guys just because he's in this lecture he's doing all this art and his symbolism and this and that yeah i was curious what was your favorite work of art loaded with symbolism oh in this movie or In in general no no in general Okay, so yeah, so I I picked Hans Holbein's The Ambassadors. Hell yes. Um, Right? Um, Holbein was a German artist, but he was basically a court artist to to Henry VIII. And this is, you know, two ambassadors to the court, um, you know, kind of flanking this double height table full of artifacts. So, of course, there's tons of speculation about what all the artifacts mean. There's a lot of scientific equipment. So, you know, this is the flowering of the Renaissance. but the detail that is so freaking weird and amazing is in the front of the painting, there's this like diagonal swipe and it turns out it's an anamorphic skull. Like it's a skull only if you look at it from a certain angle. So for one thing, again, just showing off, like we have this new thing called optics and we know how to do this weird effect. But even on top of that, whether the skull is rightly proportioned or wrongly proportioned, it's just floating there in the middle of the space for no reason, apropos of nothing. 
<laughs> just hanging out with those ambassadors. Uh, yeah, yeah. I fucking love that painting. Yeah, you took me to it when we were in, yeah. when we were in London. I also love that painting because it's a breakup painting for me, which is pretty dope. <laughs> uh, story, please. I was dating a boy when we were living in London, and um, we were things were dwindling and uh we had had this plan because we were like gonna go back to the u.s but then like we were gonna like gonna meet up because he's we were from a different state than me and we had this like sort of vague plan to meet up and whatever and um we're standing there at hans Holbein. we're at the little they put a little x on the on the floor so we're standing there on the little x they mark the floor so you can stand and get the right view of the skull and uh i can't remember if it was him or me i'll say it was him goes do you want to just not and I said, yeah. And that was that. <laughs> That's like the hellest breakup I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty calm. It was an obvious one. That's why I think we were both like, <laughs> see you never. But, <laughs> but it will always have a special place in my heart as the best breakup I've ever had. <laughs> was there, I mean, is there any reason you were in front of that painting in particular? It just happened to be where you were. Just happened you? to be where you were. But maybe just mm-hmm. looking at that skull, we were like, life is short to t- too short to date each other. Fair enough. Exactly. <laughs> Memento Mori, that's why it's there. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, is that, what's your interpretation of the painting, Andrea? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry to bring yeah, Nobody spot. knows. No, no, no. Well, yeah, no one knows. It's it's hotly debated, which I guess is what makes it interesting. But I guess sometimes I think the interpretation of symbols, a la what goes on in the movie and a la what a lot of historians do with this painting is like a little overblown. Um, you know that like, Lord, did you take... When you're at Yale, any classes with Alex Nemiroff? Oh, yeah. I think it, as, oh, yeah. as Laura's oh, favorite, yeah. favorite professor. <laughs> yeah, Nemiroff's got some strong Langdon vibes. Oh, my God. I hope he never hears this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just said he was right? your favorite professor. I So, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't appreciate I, think, I don't think he'd like being allied with Langdon, is all I meant. Oh, but. Robert Langdon. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I thought you said Langdon. Yeah, I was yeah. like, is that some other art historian? No, no, no. Sorry, Andy, yeah. what were you going to say about Sorry. Nemiroff? No, I mean, um, yeah, brilliant art historian, really great and interesting writer and thinker. But I do think sometimes he goes too far in ascribing yeah. artist intention to every, you know, he was he was visiting UVM because he's an alum and he was giving a lecture on a Edward Hopper painting. And he's like, the shape in this rock is exactly the same as the shape of the horse's head. And I'm like, Really? Yeah. And Hopper really thinking about the shape of the rock matching the shape of the horse's head. Like, I guess, I think sometimes it goes too yeah. far. And some, and I think it's fine as a tool to like interpret what we think of that thing now or how we see it and perceive it and how that creates meaning. But I think sometimes we go too far in ascribing that intention to the original artist. Totally. You know? Yeah. Like, it felt like making the rock shape like that. He liked that color blue, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. When he came to our our seminar in my junior year, we he came to talk about one of his papers and because they just did this where they'd have the faculty come in and sort of like try to embody a particular um, lens of art, of art history. But I remember we had this one again. I think it was like a sale that – he was arguing uh, was like a an apron and another illustration. And basically one of the students was like, you can't do that. <laughs> 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 like she raised her hand and she's like, 
No. <laughs> and then to which Nemiroff responded, oh, wait, am I the blank, blank, blank yeah. professor of art history <laughs> at Yale? I guess I can. He's like, I definitely can. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How do you think I got this name chair? <laughs> yeah. No, I, his, his, his work is like, I mean, the fact that he is descended from poets, I feel like is like very mm. clearly there. Um, you know, like he's definitely like his, mm-hmm. his, his work is interpretive and evocative. But yes, I think a lot of art history also have issues with like this is not history in the sense of like you you know it is not attached to the context or the artist's intention from what the object was originally made he just loves he loves his bars man i mean i think <laughs> you know there are different schools of this sort of stuff totally I, I think it's true you know mm-hmm. i think that what's kind of fun about that this debate is that it 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 forces you to reconsider the methods by which you want to approach and engage with art. And like, it's provocative in a way, right? It provokes Mm, this thing where you're like, ah, now I have to deal with this, right? What am I going to say? Like, am I going to be like, no, this is, you can't do that. Or are you going to be like, all right, I see what you're doing. I'm going to play this game with you. Or am I just going to leave the room? Like, what are you going to, and I think that's that, you know, you get this a lot in critical theory too. and, And in literary theory, just this, there's it's it's de- sometimes just deliberately provocative where they're just destabilizing right. their own methods in order to shake things up and and can you know create a new conversation um and that can be really irritating <laughs> i mean <laughs> right. I, there's a reason I i'm mean, a philosopher and not a literary theorist i mean i guess yeah i think you're right in that like that is often how academia works is like staking out a method a position I guess I do think it goes too far when it becomes this black and white thing. Like, no, I'm right. No, I'm right. Yeah. You're wrong. And so like, but we have no way to know definitively prove these things. It's not something that's provable. Yeah. It's inter- again, it's interesting to speculate on insofar as it brings us meaning in, in, in our age, encountering, encountering this work of art in our context, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know, so much like original context can't, be fully restored. I mean, Laura, you were bringing up that article where someone's speculating for totally symbologist reasons that the Mona Lisa is not the Jaconda, but uh, uh, Da Vinci's mother. The Mona Lisa is just like one of these m- paintings that just like everybody has a conspiracy theory about it. It's just, mm. it's just like a confounding and strange work of art. It is yeah. confounding, but you can't really totally put your finger on why. And some mm. of the stuff that he was doing about talking about how the, like the horizon's not exactly level behind him. One eye's higher than the other, like one side's larger than the other. That's all true. Like people have, you know, pointed that out. It's, it's, she's sort of like alluring in the fact that she is a little off. Right. And, mm-hmm. But trying to understand what that means or why is 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 uh, kind of impossible to uncover. Um, right. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I I one of my <laughs> scenes that I really liked was um, when we go to um, oh Teabing Teabing's house and he's just like, "Here's the Last Supper," and I was like, "Why is it on a TV?" And then I get my answer because he's about to do his own. He's doing uh, his PowerPoint presentation. He's about to do his own PowerPoint presentation. He's showing some mm-hmm. negative space and stuff. And then he's like flipping around the care, the like the figures, you know. Yeah. And he's like, "Who is this man with a hint of a bosom?" Ooh, it's a lady, <laughs> you know. But <laughs> I think, <laughs> but it reminded me, and I don't mean this in a like in a tongue in cheek way. I like legitimately like reminded me of the way that art that um, museum docents are sometimes trained to talk mm. to talk to people about works of art and just. Mm 
help them find the vocabulary to work their way through a piece of art and what they see and what that means to them. And like, because I think oftentimes people think they're supposed to look at a work of uh, art and just like immediately understand why it's important or interesting or then like look at the label and be like, this person lived in this time and died at this time. And like, now I know art history yeah. and it's neither one of those things, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. you can't like just look at it and smack understand what's happening if you don't have any context in art. Oftentimes you can't. Some people can, especially with more um, abstract art. I think sometimes that's easier to have an emotional response to it. Mm-hmm. But and and uh, nor is it just like understanding biographical facts about the about the artist. Um, mm-hmm. But the but like I think oftentimes it's hard for people to even know how to like jump in. And so a lot of docents are, t- are taught to like have to show people how they can like just make their own meaning out of a painting. Yeah. And it's not meant to be like, well, that's, yeah, then yeah, that's yeah. valid, but like it's, it's like valid in that like to get you going. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. What's it the appetite for engaging with it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I mean, that's not what's going on with Langdon and Teeving who are, who are like no, they're totally like, mansplaining this is what- <laughs> to, Sophie and I, I mean I thought it was kind of funny the way it's framed where it's like the two of them are like finishing each other's sentences and then they cut to Sophie who kind of has this bored look on her face and it, it brought back many good days you know good times at grad school parties with like lots of men you know often huddled around beers and you know yelling mansplaining stuff to each other with like Maybe there wouldn't be. I don't know. The women were probably involved too, but like uh, maybe their maybe their girlfriends would be in the corner and just like rolling their. Well, I mean, you know, or they were in their corner rolling their eyes, making fun of them, the the, the men. But anyway, uh, you know, it was. You know uh, what? I I think we need to take down the institution of philosophy because they're not giving enough power to women leaders in the field. That's a hundred percent true. I mean, yeah, it's like an attempt. Yeah, we're trying to correct for. Um, you know, what was it, 2,500 years of total dominance by men? It's, you know, it's, it's tough, mm-hmm. but uh, we're so, working on it. So, like, are you going to leave this the secret organization that you've been a part of that susses mm-hmm. out, you know, the, the woman uh, who actually, with- yeah, Aristotle, did you know Aristotle had a wife? And Aristotle... <laughs> His wife was the real philosopher. Yeah, they made that into a movie. It was called The Wife. Oh. The Wife. What is there? What if there was a wife? Yeah, it was called uh, The Wife. <laughs> Aris- every work of Aristotle was actually ghostwritten by his wife. Mm. Um, and the and the big big philosophy with a P has been covering it up ever since. Oh my god! When you get a PhD in philosophy, they reveal that to you, and then they say, like, if you ever reveal the secret like I'm doing right now, you will be forever banished and never get a job in philosophy. And to, <laughs> They've been pretty successful at at doing it. That's why nobody knows. Opus PH Day. Oh, very good, very good. But there's a few brave one of us among the a priori. Oh, oh, that was a nice philosopher joke. The a priori are out there trying to. Yeah, you should be the new Dan Brown. You you do good riddles and and uh, puns. (laughs) (laughs) There are no puns in this movie. Well. There's very simple riddles. All right. So I liked that scene. Did okay. you guys, I mean, what did you guys think of the, like, the Silas when he's whacking himself? You know, he's got the butt out. He's looking like he's been <laughs> he's exercising, right? Out. He's been actually, <laughs> he's got the butt. He's got the, like, body of a monk, right? Of, like, a monk who's been running marathons. But he's also got a lot of wounds. 
I don't know. That was kind of that was kind of sad. It was really intense. I forgot how intense that part. Well, no, I didn't forget. I haven't seen it. I I forgot how <laughs> part. I forgot how intense the but parts you had were read in the book. book. Yeah. yeah, I had right. kind of, and um, yeah, I feel like that's when the movie really announces its tone, where they're like, "We're taking this a hundred percent seriously," because it's really like I feel like um, those could scenes could have been shorter, but. But Ron Howard chooses to really like. Yeah, he gave multiple first, multiple iterations of self self flagellation scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very early. It's yeah. like the second or third scene or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It is yeah. interesting that we uh, when it's initially presented, you're like, "This is scary," but then when you realize when you think about it, you're like, "No, this is actually really sad." Like this poor guy. Mm-hmm. He was like mm-hmm. an orphan or whatever, and now he he's been taught by this incredibly conservative bishop or whatever who now he, he feels like he has to do this stuff to like pen- penance in you know in front of god or whatever yeah it's super sad but um was that do you that was you were just bringing that up as one of your favorite scenes i'm not a favorite scene it's memorable it's a good because scene, i think yeah. it's you know it's tough to watch and and but i was just i think it's interesting that there's a flip for me at least in the course of the movie it flips it goes from being scary because mm-hmm. scary to being actually like pitiful Yes, yeah, yeah. Because at first he's sort of like a super villain almost. Yeah, you're like, yeah, oh, this guy's the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And then he also beats himself up like, ooh, he's so hardcore. And then you realize, nah, this he's is... like a kid, basically. Yeah, yeah. And to Andrea's point about every year, everybody kind of turns out to just be a complicated person trying to figure out their stuff. Man. No, it's no, no clear good or bad guys in this movie, really. If only the Catholic Church could tell us who the good guys and the bad guys were. <laughs> <laughs> if, if there only there was a book. That had all the information in it. I don't mean the Da Vinci Code. Oh, I mean okay. The, the Bible. Bible. Oh, I thought you were talking about the Da Vinci Code. I was like, the Da Vinci Code has all the answers. <laughs> so da Vinci Code. Sacrilegious. Uh, did you guys like the art history scavenger hunt in the loop? That was my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like both that and, and the flagellation scene were not as iconic as I remembered them. And I think that they actually... It's the rare instance where my visualization of it from reading the book was stronger mm. and stayed in my memory more vividly than the scenes in the movie. And I think that's, yeah, maybe that's another failing of the movie. Like, I feel like it could be so much more visually compelling. And it is, particularly when it's focused on art. But when they're in the Louvre, it's so dark and mm-hmm. you can't really see the painting. Do you think? I, but Laura, you like that scene. Tell me more. Well, I just, I mean, I just, um, I've, I love true crime. I love mm-hmm. puzzles. I love mm-hmm. art. I'm just right in the Venn diagram for this. And um, I think, you know, that was when I was the most in the pocket for the movie. And then as things went on, a little bit less so. Well, <laughs> so, then you got later and later. And, <laughs> and then I got sleepier eyes and sleepier. Got heavier. Yes. But I just, I, I, what a nut. This guy <laughs> is shot. And then he's like, okay. All right, so now I got a Fibonacci, uh huh, and then I'm gonna twist that around. Yep, okay, and then I'm gonna make an anagram, and it's gonna go to the Mona Lisa. But no, we're not done. One more painting. This poor man's dragging his body around. He's like carving, you know, stars into his chest. Like I love that part when the when Fachi was like, "No, 
he did this to himself. And the, dun, 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 dun. You know, and like, what a freaking nut. I love it. And also, like, it's not enough to do a scrambled Fibonacci and an anagram and one painting that you have to go to. You've got to go to the next painting. you got to go to another painting. This poor guy has right. got his key. He's like, I hope I don't bleed out before they get to, you know. <laughs> yeah, hey, can you imagine? And then he just got a key on his body. Like, he died Damn there. it. How, how long did it take him to die? Like, quite a long time. Yeah. Quite a long time. I, it would take me a really long time just to like, you know, mix around the Mona Lisa letters to make something that actually sets sort of a semblance of a phrase. Well, I Can I say I'll make one just one small comment on that point? Yes. So the 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 anagram is O Draconian Devil O Lane Saint, which turned the first part turns into Leonardo da Vinci and the second part the Mona Lisa. You really only needed True. the Mona Lisa. Yeah. That was the only <laughs> you didn't need and we all know even if Robert Langdon was, you yeah, know, <laughs> Not a Harvard symbologist. I think he would know who <laughs> painted the Mona Lisa. On the other side, if he wrote, if he did like Madonna and Child, they'd be looking for like years in the Louvre. They'd be like, damn it, which one? <laughs> <laughs> I guess actually to combat that, Justin, if it was just Mona Lisa, it'd be too easy to figure out. Right? The the French detectives would have figured that out. He, he had to make it hard enough. Oh, I see. So if it was just <laughs> O Lame Saint, they might have been able to figure out the anagram. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, you need somebody who's brilliant like Langdon to oh. figure it out. <laughs> I mean, also, that that is something that is a goofy thing, which is like, you it, brilliance is measured by your ability to fit, figure out anagrams. <laughs> <laughs> but you had like an, an anagram test, right? It when is you, true. And, Actually, for PhD what? defense, they throw you into a pit of vipers <laughs> with like, uh, you've got to solve anagrams and like Rubik's cubes and not get <laughs> stung by the vipers. Okay, we're joking, but Andrew and I like had to memorize thousands of works of art in order mm -hmm. to get our degree. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. not clear how that re represents our intelligence other than our ability for our brain to just like cram a bunch of dates in there. But we, <laughs> but we did it. Yeah. We sure did. <laughs> we also, do you remember our Dan Brown pact, Andrea? What? No. Yeah. Okay. So um, Andrea and I, in order to get our master's, we had to do a comprehensive exam, which is sort of meant to be over all of history across the globe. Um, <laughs> and um, and we, it was a lot of memorization of a lot of slides. But we had different sections, and one was Italian Renaissance. I think we had an Italian Renaissance and a Northern Renaissance. Um, mm -hmm. And we could get a work of art from any, you know, any work of art from the Italian Renaissance. And we had a pact of, within our group, our cohort, that if a Leonardo <laughs> painting came up, we would cite scholar Dan Brown at some point in our essay that we would write for it. <laughs> <laughs> No luck, though. Thank God they did not, because I don't know if everybody yeah. would have done it. <laughs> right. I don't. Do you remember what work was in the? I don't. I don't remember. It was not a Leonardo, though. I remember like when it was that section, like it, like you know, I was like holding my breath, like, is it gonna be? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this was 2011. Yeah. So five years after the movie. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, Brown's got staying power. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. We were sitting there in our art history class talking about scholar Dan Brown taking it very mm -hmm. seriously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, he's... I was about to say he's a Harvard symbologist, but he's not. But he invented <laughs> one, so I guess Close that's good enough. enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I just saw something, Andrea, that I want to draw attention to that, that I think is pretty cool. So um, the final twist of this movie 
is, I mean, there's like 800 twists. I'm actually, for, for, just to spare the reader, a listener, I'm not going to go through the twists. Don't do it. There's a lot of them. But the final twist is that Langdon discovers that the body of Magdalene is actually underneath the Louvre in La Pyramide in Versailles on the Rose Line. And you mentioned, Andrea, something kind of cool about that. I didn't, yeah. <laughs> if that is the case, then I am Pei, the famous architect who did the Louvre edition that includes the glass pyramids. He would have to be Priory of Scion. Yeah, right. Cool. The whole thing is that the pyramids represent the male and the female and they're touching and and then under that is Magdalene. So if you're going to incorporate that iconography into this very iconic design, I think you'd have to be in on and I'm a symbolist. 100%. Totally. Yeah, it goes all the way to the top. <laughs> no, but the, but this priory, they're the kind of the good guys. And if you think about it, right, they're they're right, they're keeping the secret alive. Yeah. To, yeah. yeah. So he's on the good side, but but that's cool that it's an international crew, you know, that like they <laughs> it's not just yeah. these white European dudes and ladies. Right. Do you think like I am pay would have been priory to begin with, or do you think they're like, oh man, we gotta move this, these bones. We gotta, but we gotta do it in style. We're gonna need an architect. And then they like go and recruit him. <laughs> you know, this is a good question about the, this organizational structure, right? Because <laughs> they talk about how there's only four. There's only four, right. At any given time, but obviously there's not. And that last scene in the church, like a ton of them kind of swarm in on her. Yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, you definitely need more than, than four people, particularly if you're going to start incorporating it into church and museum architectures. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of people at the loop. There's like, I'm sure it's... <laughs> It's a tricky right. bit of tricky bit of to get that to get those bones in, I'm sure. Um right. did okay, so one of the I do want to mention that I really liked the flashbacks. I think that's my favorite parts of the movie. You are such a weirdo. Because I well, I thought they were cool. Like I that was when the movie I think this movie's honestly like a little bit weighed down by uh, you know, even though it has a certain pace to it in terms of oh, reveal, 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 but it's sort of weighed down by all these reveals. And like when the movie is doing flashbacks, it just kind of it, then it just lets the visual language tell the story a little bit more than Robert Langdon just mansplaining stuff. I mean, yes, he's over, you know, he's mansplaining over top of the visual stuff. Yeah. But the visual stuff is doing some lifting and I kind of enjoyed that. So I liked it when when it when we went to the grainy. But you know. why does it have to be so grainy? Don't you think the fact it's that everybody's a- in medieval attire <laughs> would, would like indicate that we're in a flashback? I don't know. Man. Like <laughs> it's just a cool cue. I thought it was cool. <laughs> um that's 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 a crazy take. I don't know about that. But the also thing is like maybe okay, fine, but we probably could have cut a few of them. Like we probably didn't need the thing that they're like, did you know about witches? Not, yeah, right. not necessary. I get that we're talking about persecution of women and this is related to Mary Magdalene, but that we got a whole witch scene, like flashback. It's probably could have cut that down a little bit we didn't need nice a templar make it simpler mm. what did the nice a templar have to do with it ultimately? well they were part of the prior they were blah, the blah, initial blah. priory crew right they went to get the body anyway whatever that's what i'm saying it's too long convoluted it is kind of convoluted <laughs> um yeah. you know i thought i forgot to put this in the doc but another scene that i really liked because this is when it got the most james bondy uh was zurich bank 
The, the oh yeah yeah I That's love fun. that I love the cool scene like, it's actually sort of John Wicky too now that I think about it but like it's mm. got this like weird key that gives you access and then there's the robotic arm that gets the that gets the item it gets the codex out of the out of the safe deposit box and I love that they're like well your account has safe passage and so we're gonna like sneak <laughs> you out of the, into this armored car. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed all of that. Yeah, it was cool. That was, I think, maybe where it was getting more to the campy, uh, which is why it was a little right. more fun. What did you guys think about Robert Langdon? Get thee to a library. <laughs> <laughs> He's constantly gotta needing, love, Yeah, he needs a library. Gotta love an action movie with the line, I've gotta get to a library. But he never gets to the library. <laughs> mm. Oh, you're right. He does, I, there must be more sort of library in the book, right? At so many steps in the journey from the book were excised for length, I think. That might be right, yeah. But instead of going to the library, they go to a dude on the bus and get his phone because for some <laughs> reason, Robert Langdon doesn't have a cell phone. But, but whatever. later he does. He doesn't anyway. have a data plan. He doesn't have a data plan. And, then, and there so you go. they queue up quicksolver.net. <laughs> oh man, that that's a, that was a tough one where you're like, okay, uh, yeah, this was like pre like Google dominance, I guess. So quicksolver.net mm-hmm. might have been an early search engine, and then he just types it in and he gets everything he wants. They're just what was he? What did he? I don't even remember what clue he gets at that point. That's the Alexander Pope thing. I Alexander think. Pope. Yep. Yep. So yeah, he's not that brilliant. He just had a, like a Google search mistake or such, <laughs> right? Like he didn't even figure that one out on his own. Andrea, what did you think of Tom Hanks? You know, I went into it, you know, before I rewatched it, thinking that maybe he was miscast. Like maybe the movie would be more fun if he was either kind of like a really eccentric nerd type, like a Poirot or a monk kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Or if it really went in the other direction and went sort of like, suave action hero like you know i was thinking i haven't seen it but i was thinking about national treasure because what is national treasure but da vinci code but that knows how ridiculous it is mm-hmm. right? yeah and it has like i think much more of a everlasting so bad it's good legacy uh and obviously nick cage is a big part of that but then and then i was thinking like i don't remember langdon in the books having a very distinctive personality either so yeah. in that way hanks works for it but I just think, you know, I, I know you're a big, de- you know, detective and mystery reader, Laura, like most great detective characters really do have like a distinctive personality quirk of some kind that kind of contributes to the way they approach mystery solving. And Langdon's lacking that a little for me. And what do you guys think? Yeah, I agree with you. I think he's so much of a viewpoint character. He doesn't have any of his own personality, except for that he might have an eidetic memory. He doesn't even have that. He's I mean, just like, I remember things. And- Right. And agoraphobia. Yeah. Which isn't really much of a plot point. Like, it just comes up, but it doesn't... There's not, like, some challenge at the end where he has to overcome his agoraphobia to save the girl or something. Yeah. Here's the pitch for Hanks. I think that's all good points. Here's my pitch. He's kind of like... He's America's dad, and he's kind of a dad in this, right? There's no love connection with him and Sophie, right? It's clearly, like, a father-daughter relationship. I'm trying to remember if that was different in the book, because... Um, in the John Oliver skit, he keeps talking about how like Langdon is horny and he's like a yeah. horny detective yes. and it's the horniest detective book. And I'm like, there's nothing horny about this movie at all. No. Like a lot of Ron Howard movies, it's not very horny at all. Um, but I, 
Yeah, that, but I wonder if there was like something sexy that was listed to be happening in the book, and then they just like nix that for the movie. Yeah, maybe. But I liked that they're that they I, kind of kept it chased between them, I and did that too. they I never. I was worried. I was real worried when I saw that age gap, and I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but and but the the part which really sold me on Hanks and why I was like, okay, I I can I see why Howard wanted Hanks in this role is that last speech he gives to mm. Sophie, that final speech. Why does it have to be human or divine? Maybe human is divine. Why couldn't Jesus have been a father and still been capable of all those miracles? Like turning water into wine? Well, who knows? His blood is your blood. Maybe that junkie in the park will never touch a drug again. Maybe you healed my phobia with your hands. And maybe you're a knight on a grill quest. Well, here's the question. A living descendant of Jesus Christ, would she destroy faith? Or would she renew it? So again, I say, what matters is what you believe. Thank you. It felt very much like, you know, Tom Hanks giving this kind of warm, comforting soliloquy to us the audience kind of assuring us that like we all get to choose you know what we want to do with our lives and it's all going to be okay and i felt i was like yeah i kind of want i you know i would take two hours of tom hanks just assuring me things are going to be okay you know and (laughs) in a way this movie kind of just that's what it is is like langdon kind of always you know maybe he doesn't always know exactly what's going on but you're assured that langdon is going to solve the case and he's going to make you feel okay. And um, and I think Tom Hanks is good at that. That's like kind of why we go watch Tom Hanks, right? Is he makes sure. us feel yeah. warm and fuzzy. Like everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Apparently Howard wanted uh, Bill Paxton. But he oh. wasn't Bill Paxton. Paxton would have brought something to well, it. Well, Bill Paxton would have yeah, brought a a weird here. energy. Um, <laughs> For sure. And, and I, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I but like Tom isn't Hanks he, in it. Like, but he's a... a professor symbologist i mean honestly justin out of all the professors you know and you know a lot on the whole are they uh normal dad types or are they weirdos uh yeah in good ways i don't mean to like yeah (laughs) no i think you have to be i think it's you have to be quirky you have to to be be a little bit weird to be an academic but tom hanks is a he in this movie he is a little bit weird right he's weird for tom hanks he's got the hair well the hair is a oh yeah the hair is a terrible he's got the hair He's kind and, of pale looking, a little puffy. Yeah. Sorry, and, not to be judgy about appearance. <laughs> and he's yeah. just a little bit too eager to explain stuff, right? That's a professor tra- mm-hmm. trait. So I don't know. But yeah, definitely he's a bland, ordinary kind of professor guy. And But I think that's what the movie's calling for. You know, it's not calling for like... Uh, at least the way I read They're it. They're not calling him to be Benedict Cumberbatch and Sherlock. Yeah, right? exactly. Okay. Or or, or <laughs> like Benedict Cumberbatch in the imitation game or Benedict Cumberbatch at all. Like, like <laughs> he, he doesn't need to be, he doesn't need to have That's like quirks. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's, he's here to reassure us that I everything's going to be okay. And um, anyway, that's my read on, on the character. But I, I, you know, I do think that, you know, in this, you know, from the perspective of 2022, looking back, you'd be like, I totally see everything you're saying, Andrew, where you're like, yeah, this movie could have been actually a little bit more interesting if it had dialed yeah. up some of the weirdness in some of the different right. dimensions. 
So, um, but it probably wouldn't have made as much money at the time. Yeah, right. I, I do want to talk about Audrey Tatao as well, because yeah. she stars in some of my favorite movies of all time. Um, you know, and, and obviously those were, you know, Amelie and A Very Long Engagement and Amelie more than the latter, but both were sort of French movies that were like crossover hits in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, or or m- made impact in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it felt like this was supposed to be her yeah. crossover movie into American movies. And that didn't really happen. And I was trying to look at, so I guess in 2009, she played Coco Chanel. And she's worked steadily, but nothing on her filmography in the last decade is anything I've heard of, is anything that, to my knowledge, has made any, any impact. Mm-hmm. And that made me sad because I felt like, obviously, of course, going into the movie, she didn't have the profile of Hanks or anyone. But I did wonder if this is another example of women getting more penalized for making a bad movie oh, than men are, both mm-hmm. in, in acting roles and definitely in directing roles. Mm. um that that like it this sort of tamped down what was supposed to be a crossover moment for her and yeah like she doesn't have a lot to do like i kind of kept waiting for some moment where she would chime in with some bit of knowledge that yeah. she had that right yeah she the has puzzle. her own and that, right it felt like that never happened like she was just along for the ride and waiting for hanks to reveal the truth to her the whole time and so that's yeah she, she didn't get, get enough to do yeah, I will say I think, you know, uh there is a there are 800 scenes in which men explain things to her, but mm-hmm. she has such uh she feels competent in that movie. It's true that she doesn't really ever yeah. get to her, get to bring her cryptology to bear really and like get to like show her right. skill set off. But she, you know, there's that moment where she calms him in the in the in the armored car and she's for the most part I think he's like a father figure to her but she's the roles are reversed there she's literally playing out what her mother did to her she's mothering him you know she's got the scene where she sort of takes charge and t- walks him into the into the park and like pays the the man to to leave the the bench um and uh you get the sense that like she's not really freaked out by this danger and she has got a good head on her shoulder. She's like a real steady presence in the movie. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I do like that about her, about her character and the way that she plays it. Um, but yes, I totally agree. I wanted her to like have her moment yeah. to like solve a puzzle or, mm-hmm. you know, figure something out. And uh, instead everybody's just explaining, <laughs> explaining mm-hmm. to her. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, which of Amelie or long, very long engagement do you like more? Very long engagement. Yeah, I think me too. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, I like it. It's I haven't seen it yeah. actually. Um, which, mm. if Edward Lewis is listening, I'm sorry. I will see it soon. We'll just do it on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, have me have me back for that, please. Okay, okay. I did not know that it was like a favorite of yours. So do we know? Oh yeah, um, Andrea. So we want to close with you know. There's a lot of depictions of you know museums and churches and you know spaces which have been curated in a way and have people like docents there working you know um in this movie uh you uh were curator at a museum uh for for a time and you have a degree in art history and you love museums i'm curious like what some of your favorite or what interesting depictions of museums um, you want to shout out to the audience who might be interested in other depictions of museums um, in film or television. Yeah, and I want to start with one that is very directly related to this movie in a way, um, which is um, the Carter's music video for Ape Shit. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, this is Beyonce and Jay-Z filmed in the Louvre in the very same rooms and in front of some of the very same iconic works of art, uh, you know, included at the beginning of the Da Vinci Code. And it's such a power move. <laughs> I mean, they, they even had trouble, I found this, they had trouble getting permission to film the Da Vinci Code in the Louvre, in part because the staff was so sick of people coming to the Louvre and like, Doing talking the, about the dimension yeah <laughs> right? you know i bet the so, french hated it too <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah so just the power inherent in jay-z and beyonce getting the permission to shoot a whole music video with dancers in front of these iconic works of art i mean what do you know about the mona lisa about going to see it you know that you can't get anywhere near it. There's a big velvet rope. There's a huge crowded. And there is Jay-Z and Beyonce standing in front of it. Like it's nothing in mm. incredible haute couture suits and outfits. And oh, and Beyonce dancing from this gigantic painting of Napoleon crowning Empress Josephine. Mm. I mean, it's just, you know, the, the iconography of power. And, mm. uh, you know, of course, what it means for Black Americans to be taking that degree of power in front of these, you know, really, you know, iconographies of lowercase white power in history is just um, incredible. And, and that um, is, it's now like used in teaching and museum studies classes, Hmm. right? Hmm. Um, As is the scene from Black Panther, when um, Eric Killmonger goes to the museum and, you know, gets the haughty curator to come out. She's the expert, you know, da da da. And he's like, no, you're wrong. That's from Wakanda. It's vibranium. I'm taking it off your hands because how do you think your ancestors got this? And I always say the least realistic part of that scene is that the curator's drinking coffee in the gallery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. And then um, just a fun one is the TV show Rutherford Falls on Peacock, which is um, Ed Helms and then a bunch of indigenous actors and writers and showrunners and there's uh, the main characters play best friends who you know both kind of want to start their own museums and at Holmes plays like the descendant of the town's white founder um, who has this whole museum dedicated to his family and the um, Reagan the um, indigenous woman is trying to like get this cultural center started in the casino um, the, and uh, you know, there's just so many great pointed moments where even though they have this great friendship, there's a tension in like, he's got all this white privilege and can kind of just get what he wants and is railing against finally not getting what he wants. And, you know, what she has to do. There's at one point where she kind of takes um, a pot from this cabin and puts it in her cultural center and says, because, you know, I repatriated it. <laughs> <laughs> like, geez. Um, so yeah, it's just a lot of great, great moments in there that really rang true for me. I'll put all the links to all the paintings that you guys re- referred to, and I'll put some links to the, some of the shows and scenes that you talked about, Andrea, because I think that'll be really cool for people to, to, to check out if they're interested in seeing maybe a slightly more realistic depiction of what art history is all about, what museums and museum studies is all about. 
Then the Da Vinci Code, which is a movie full of, which is a movie that's actually based on historical facts. Let's be real. Yeah, it's a documentary. <laughs> um, <laughs> Andrea, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me again. This is and such a treat. Thanks for doing the Da Vinci Code. I don't know how you watched it, but we watched it on 4K disc. And okay. it was glorious. Was it worth it? Oh, it was totally worth it. Here's the thing about 4K disc. I'm just going to make my quick rant <laughs> on it. making a For face. goodness sake. Here's the thing. You might think, why, why, do, why do Da Vinci Code, right? No. Here's the thing. It's shot on film, and it just... All, film scanned at 4K and projected on 4K looks good. It, it's, and Matt Stroll knows this. Past, past the Future guest Matt Stroll has tweeted about this, and he's 100% right. It's the closest thing to watching film because it's the high. It's, you're watching and at, you can see grain. You can see detail. You can definitely see grain in those flashbacks. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is great. It just it's cool. It's like watching an actual like watching the actual film and like no you know that that's basically impossible. Nobody's going to screen a rep. There's never going to be a rep screening of the Da Vinci Code. No, you know and- in 35 millimeter. No way. But like it's cool Are to you approximate. Just gonna that. build in like a format rant, like <laughs> every, every <laughs> podcast. I'm now? just saying, man. 4K <laughs> Da Vinci Code. Oh, the other thing Laura was mentioning. You even you noticed this. You were like, man, that bass is popping. Yeah, it. That's true. Uncompressed that's true. audio, man. <laughs> Uncompressed audio <laughs> files. You get those. I on think the my disc. exact question was, did you turn the subwoofer up to eleven again? No, okay. no, no. <laughs> the subs were normal sounding, and it was. It's just was. It was powerful bass because it's mixed well because it's a studio film. It cost seventy million dollars, shot on film, <laughs> yeah. and they, they yeah, and they know what they're doing. They get pros to do this, and so it's going to look good for the most part. It's going to be well lit. Wait, and, did you say seventy million, or we cut it to cost one hundred and seventy million? I think it's just seventy. Okay, because like you said it was, it was almost a tenant. How much did tenant cost? Wasn't it? Was it a hundred? No way. I, I don't not know. say. Wait, 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 wait. I no, 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 no. I don't think it was one hundred and seventy million. I don't believe that. I think. Hold on, I'm okay. going to find out right now in okay. case in case I'm I have sorry. it wrong. I, I don't want the I don't want to get added on Twitter. So I'm oh good. yeah, really? It's going to happen. People yeah. are really going to ferociously go after you about the budget of. <laughs> da Vinci Code. I forgot the name of this movie for a second. I was like, "What is the movie <laughs> called?" Um, it is. It was. That's a silly. Oh fuck! It was 125 million. Okay, that's I a got lot that of money. Up. Okay, um, wait, wait, wait. Let me just fix that. Okay, yeah, it's a movie that costs 125 million dollars, so it's gonna look good. All right. Oh, you want to look smart, huh? Well, I just <laughs> didn't want to. We, I said it was a big tangent, and anyway, I'm cutting all that shit. <laughs> I was just going to mention regarding Da Vinci Code. That's another thing that art historians sort of laughed about, calling Leonardo Da Vinci. Da Vinci. It's just he's from Vinci. We don't people <laughs> use, they call him Leonardo. <laughs> Wait, what? Well, his last name isn't Da Vinci. It's the the artist named Leonardo Da Vinci is like Leonardo of Vinci. And um, what's his actual last name? I don't think we know it. Right? Do we know it? Oh gosh, I don't know. I don't it's think not so. my era. No, it's not in, my era either. In the Futurama spoof, he, spoof, he's from a planet called Vinci. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, usually <laughs> we just refer to him as Leonardo. Wow. Okay. And not, like so, of Calgary. Like <laughs> <laughs> that's my name. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again, Andrea. It was a blast having you on. Thanks for correct putting the record straight on the code i guess it's what it's called the code because we can't say it's da vinci 
Um, <laughs> I didn't say you can't. <laughs> well, you were really getting up in arms about calling it Da Vinci's Code or whatever. Also, I don't know why it's even called the Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci plays basically no role outside of the like go to this painting by Da Vinci called the Mona Lisa. Anyway, whatever. Um, thanks, Andrea, for being here. We are at Cal's Pod on Twitter. You can follow us um, on the web or find us on the web at calspod.wordpress.com. And as alluded to earlier, Andrea brought up The National Treasure, which is a classic Nick Cage film. In honor of Keith Phipps, past and future guest book, The Age of Cage, which is coming out, I think it's in bookstores now, uh, we will be talking to Keith about National Treasure in two weeks. So join us for that. If we're going to do a kind of museum, you know, excavating the mysteries and conspiracies miniseries, I guess. So that's where we're headed next. So see you guys then. Woohoo!